Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is October the 11th, 2019. This is episode 2528 of the Survival Podcast. And, uh, of course, since it's a Friday, it's time for an expert counsel Q&A show. Here's what I've got up for you today. I got Jeff Lawton with a permaculture solution to land that floods seasonally. I've got collecting tree and nut seed as an early fall activity from Ben Falk. I've got choosing the right hosting service for your blog from Nicole Sauce. Dealing with multiple sclerosis from Doc Bones. Choosing the right truck for your personal needs. You have a specific situation, but I think the mindset here is going to work for just about anybody that needs to get a truck from Derek Bon Pietro. Healthy side dishes for your Thanksgiving meal from Gary Collins of The Simple Life Now. And resources and advice for parenting of toddlers from Mike and Sue LaPrise. If that wasn't enough, okay, fine. I get this question a lot and I pretty much avoid it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it once. I'll probably piss 90% of the audience off no matter what side of the issue you're on, but I'll do it. And I'm just going to give you my opinion and my thoughts. Uh, I have been asked yet again, how should a libertarian approach the issue of abortion? So I'll tell you what I think about that. And I'm going to tell you what I think about that from the standpoint of a society that has a state, even though I want a stateless society, because that's what we have. If we had a stateless society, it really wouldn't be an issue as to what the law should be, now would it? It would be an issue to how individuals choose to live their own lives. So we'll get to that uh, very soon. Uh, I should say at the end of today's episode, and hopefully I won't see my listener count drop by about 50,000 between now and Monday. Uh, but I'm going to give you what I think is a very logical case. And that's probably why it'll make people pissed off, because logic is something that makes people angry. Anyway, before we do that, let's go ahead and uh, start out this week with a or the, this show today with a quote of the day. This is by John Burroughs. John Burroughs was a naturalist and writer. He was with us, I believe, from around uh, the early 1830s all the way up until the early 1920s, and uh, did a lot of good in the world. And he did a lot of good in the world with a lot of small deeds, little things here and little things there. And he once said something that's been changed and, and been made into a modern quote. The modern quote is, the road to hell has been, is paved with good intentions. Um, I can't prove it, but I believe that quote actually goes back to his genesis with something John Burroughs wrote. The smallest deed is better than the greatest intention. The smallest deed is better than the greatest intention. Um, that, of course, has a lot to do with how to live and how to help people and how to be a positive influence in the world. But I think that has a lot to do with our personal lives as well. You know, as I've done more and more with the keto diet, doing my daily videos on YouTube, I get people I would call purist assholes, just like we do in the world of anarchy. Isn't that funny that, oh, I can't believe you said it's okay to eat that. That's terrible. And I, you know, to me, like, well... If you can have purest intentions, but you don't get off your ass and actually change the way that you live and the way that you eat and the way that you exercise and you stay fat, you're still fat and you're still going to die. You're still going to have a heart attack or lose your feet or your kidneys or type 2 diabetes. So a person uses something with sulacrose in it and you don't think that's okay. I don't care. Their, their small action is better than your intention. And think about how many things in life are that way. Well, one day I'm going to. Versus the person who says, I can't do all that yet, but I can do this one thing. 
And I think this is something that we can take into our lives. This is one of those really, truly great quotes because it applies to the biggest things and to the smallest things. And it applies equally to the outward as it's to the inward. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start meditating every day. So I'm going to learn like the, the ultimate techniques of uh, shamanic meditation or something like that versus a person who just says, I'm going to sit for two minutes a day and focus on my breathing just to center myself. Which one do you think is actually going to do better? The one that says they're going to do it or the one that actually does something even if it's less? So many places this goes from John Burroughs. The smallest deed is better than the greatest of intentions. Well, here's my deed and my intention right now to introduce you to somebody I consider one of my greatest mentors in life, even though I've only ever met him in person twice, which was a huge uh, huge honor. I, I don't, it just made me think of when I said that. One of the uh, coolest things in my life was the first time I met Jeff Lawton in person. And he had his daughter on his shoulder. And he said, look, that's Uncle Jack. You know, having one of your mentors tell your daughter that he, you're, you're her surrogate uncle the first time you meet him, pretty cool. Anyway, Jeff was asked a question, came in from me, we chat. For a permaculture solution, a land that floods seasonally, so it's not always flooded, but then the rains come, and then sometimes there are going to be a couple feet of water on this piece of land. Jeff, what should we do about something like that? Hi, this is Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia, and... Um I've got a, a, a question here from a, a chat group, and um, they're asking about um, how it mitigate land that's basically dry creek bed marsh. During heavy rains, it gets uh, runoff from about 40 acres. That's nice. Um, of other people's land, and um, can get between uh, one and three feet deep in water. Um, it flows in on uh, one end um, of a five-acre property. So that's a great situation. I often get this situation. I've even had this situation uh, more or less on a, on a community garden. Um, the ideal thing to do is um, actually um, check out um, the um, lowest point on the highest boundary and take a survey off there um, and... Um, See if you can get a contour line from the lowest point, where where which will be the point that the water enters. So, um, and um, what you're going to have to do is put in uh, rather large swales um, that um, create mounds that are over three feet high. So um, that means uh, digging reasonable trenches. So your trenches can be quite big. And your mounds are going to be quite high and broad. So it's, it's quite an excavation. Um, and then you're going to have to space those out across the five acres. Um, probably every, more or less every, um, 30 or 40 feet, maybe 50 feet maximum, you're going to do another one and set your overflow up. So, um, the water, when it comes in, um, overflows halfway up the mound. So um, the mound's um, three feet high above the original ground level um, and the water's going to sit up behind it uh, three feet high. Uh, sorry, h half that height, uh, 18 inches high. Um, and um, fill the mound. It'll, it'll, it'll soak the mound from underneath, but it will give you 18 inches of um, dry uh, mound above. 
Now, actually, it probably won't often get that high because the absorption into the trench will take a lot of the soak and it will sort of pacify the flow. So you set these mounds up, they swell mounds up, going right across the property if you can. Make sure you've got access though. So you may have to either pull up short on one end or put a crossing pipe in the middle or wherever you want to cross the swales going down through the site. So you, you put in a reasonable size crossing pipe, about a one foot or, or yeah, one foot or two one foot wide enough that you can get a vehicle over. Hey, hey, right down at the bottom, you're coming to the, um, the opposite end of, of the system which is also a planning point, it's the highest place on the lowest boundary. So you've got the highest spot on the lowest boundary as your lowest swell. And you've got your lowest point on the highest boundary as your highest swell. I'll try and rationalise that. The highest point on the lowest boundary is your exit swell point. So it's the longest lowest swell on the land. And the lowest point on the highest boundary is your longest highest point on the land. Now, it won't make any difference if you put a few swell ponds in the middle, like so that they're larger bowls at the back of the swell trenches in the middle swells. Because what we're after is flood absorption. So when a flood comes, a lot of it is going to absorb into the trenches, into the swell ponds, and it's not going to totally cover the mounds. And then that will give you the opportunity to grow trees on the mounds and, and other crops in amongst the trees, if you like. And their root zone will actually help. Now, you're going to grow trees that like damp roots, damp conditions, of course, but their roots will help to drain this whole system and increase the functionality of these swell trenches and swell ponds. Your overflows um, need to be set up so they're level sills. And you could rock them if you like, because it doesn't sound like it's coming through fast. It turns out it's coming through as a slow soak. So just passive overflows from one swell, um, from one, one swell to another all the way through the site. And, and you really want probably about at least 20% of the land in swell mound. So one-fifth of the land in swell mound, which means another fifth, so that means another fifth is, at least another fifth is in swell trench. So it's sort of equal. So you've got two-fifths of the land taken up by swell trench and swell mound. And you will be shocked at what will happen. You'll end up with a very fertile situation and all kinds of op uh, opportunities for production. You know, there was definitely a part in there where you could tell Jeff got a little bit distracted because he had a commotion going on around him. And I think we even got to hear a little bit of the commotion there for just a second. Um, just want to say, powering through those things, how, how do I know this? But yeah, it can be difficult. I, I have occasionally, instead of stopping the recording or whatever, had something going on, you know, here in studio and power through it. And it can make you a little bit thrown off of things that you know really well. And some of you may not even have noticed it really, except a little bit of the commotion that we heard there, um, that, that he was even having that delay. But it's something that I think if you've been through it, you're like, oh, I know what something's going on. Something's happening right now. And someone's buying time while they get their train of thought back. And I'm not thinking on them. I'm just, I'm empathizing here. 
Anyway, next up we have one for we have Ben Falk. Uh, this is not really an answer to a question. Uh, I asked some of the, the council members we didn't have questions for last week. Hey, tell us what's going on. What are you What are you working on? And Ben uh, put this piece together for us on collecting of seeds and nuts from trees for seed. So nut seed and tree seed. Hey, Jack and all, Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. I don't believe I have any current questions, um, but Jack had asked for just some topics that we're focused on that we want to chat about, and this time of year right now, a big one for me is collecting um, seed, especially nut tree seed. Tree seed as a whole, fruit as well, but with nuts, since they're very difficult to graft, unreasonably so I hear I've never tried um, the co collecting the nuts themselves um, are very worthwhile they also don't while they don't come true from seed um, they the children share a lot of um, characteristics of the parents that the seed comes from so collecting seed is is just a huge leverage point uh, for us if we're looking to add value to the landscape to collect seed from areas where a genius tree lives and then to bring that seed and be a dispersion event you know be the squirrel be the dispersion event you wish to see in the world as it were so for us it's really high leverage as it i'm sure is for some of you as well probably not the majority of you but if any of you live in a place where you don't have a certain um, composition of valuable tree and it, you can go to a place or happen to be in a place where there is that tree, uh, you just have a huge leverage point to bring that seed with you and be that dispersion. So for us, oaks are huge, and hickories as well, but we're just out of the range of almost every nut tree, and I go 20 miles west to a climate zone and a half warmer, and there's oaks everywhere and some hickories as well. So I'll go over there visiting friends or doing whatever, and I'll make a point this time of year to stop and collect buckets of nuts. And I will propagate those if they're really awesome, or even if not, I'll broadcast them. And you don't get very many broadcasting because rodent pressure is big, depending where you are. I found I'll get maybe 1%, but it's really easy to collect a 1,000 nuts or even a 100. And if, say, you collect 500 nuts, that's a pretty, pretty good number. And you get 1%, which you might get much more than that, especially if you live in an area with a lot of nuts already. Um you know, you're talking a number of trees with almost no effort. Um, and those trees can produce and will produce thousands and thousands of pounds of fat and protein value um, year after year uh, over decades and decades. So um, it's a really high leverage thing to do. And uh, we're big focused on any of any you know any of the species we don't have any oaks for us especially white oak because red oak does exist a little bit around here uh, hickories and walnuts walnuts we're now into our bearing period of growing ourselves um, a really good variety but um, that's kind of where we where we find this leverage point um, with a lot of fruits you know you can collect the seed and then grow a rootstock and graft it and it's much more reasonable to graft but with the nuts just collecting seed is, is such an easy thing to do and it's a great way to meet people I mean every time we go collecting seed especially if it's in like a neighborhood people come out and like well, what are you doing oh that's kind of interesting at first they think it's a little sketchy but then you end up really having a great conversation with people and like meeting people you would never meet 
it's amazing community building. Um, we were my wife and I were collecting black walnuts a couple of years ago, and then meeting this eighty-some-year-old neighbor uh, down in the village who we ended up at his house for two hours, telling us about his wife passed away and he was in the army, and just kind of like an amazing series of of events unfolded from just us like stooping over in his na- in his neighbor's yard collecting walnuts, and he was like, "What? What are you guys doing?" He's never seen anyone, you know, pick them off the ground. So many millions and millions of food, pounds of food, fat, high value food, food you can't even really buy in terms of quality, at least not from from the the industrial market. A fat and protein goes to waste just sitting in people's yards. I mean, acorns alone is just such a massive thing. Um, and then in some parts of the country, the black walnuts as well, especially if you're in the the Ozarks or you know up from there up in the Midwest black walnut you know empire world that's just incredible so good luck to you it's a lot of fun and it's a ton of leverage for adding value thanks all in the end the uh the mast that we receive in the fall is really a gift if we are smart enough to realize that and to do something with it so maybe that's something that some of y'all especially in places where you have a lot of uh, nut mast could take advantage of right now uh, next up, we have a question for Nicole Sauce. This one on choosing a hosting service for your blog. Nicole, what's up? Hey, everyone. Nicole Sauce here with a question from the MeWe chat group that came through on MeWe Monday when Jack was up there looking for ideas and questions and all sorts of input. And this is it. What's a good hosting company for a basic business blog? Or in a similar vein, how do I separate a good one from a bad one. Now, if you want to go into the how I separate good from bad, I've already done a fairly long segment on that, episode 2077 from September 1st of 2017. I went into a lot about what I look for in hosting. The answer to your first question is quick and easy. Basic business blog you're going to want to have a shared hosting environment. And a shared hosting environment means that multiple websites are on the same server. So when you buy like a little bit of space for your website there, you want to make sure your host is reputable, that they include things that should be included with your hosting, such as SSL. SSL should be included for free that they do regular updates and don't upcharge you. For example, if WordPress or PHP go, you know, has a new version come out that they don't charge you to do that and that they don't allow noisy neighbors. Now, you know how noisy neighbors are, right? They like the people who have the party all night long and you have to work and they keep you up. Well, the same thing can happen on a server where there's either somebody who puts some sort of crazy traffic sucking plug in on their site and it takes all of the bandwidth from your shared server environment and that makes your site slow or they do something a little bit disreputable in say Google's eyes like serving porn and then your entire server gets black marked as as a place that's not desirable and therefore your site gets caught up in that the managed hosting environment i go to the most for getting started websites is getahostnow.com it, they are providing the service on liquid webs servers. So it's robust enough to handle it. And it's managed by somebody in our network, PA Prepper over on the Zello network. And the cool thing is when there is an issue, he's on it. 
right? I will hear from him that there's an issue before I notice there is an issue most of the time. And he is very, very methodical about ensuring that none of us become noisy neighbors to each other. And that's really important. Also, his customer service is great. So they have packages starting at three bucks a month, 10 bucks a month and more, depending on the kinds of things you need. So just head over there, getahostnow.com. And if you have trouble signing up, just hit the contact link. Guess who you'll be talking to? You'll be talking to a real person in our network who is happy to steward you through the process of setting your blog up. Now, once you do that, when you get WordPress installed, do make sure that you put these three plugins on, if nothing else, one updraft and automate your backups, link it to either Google Drive or Dropbox so that they're backing up offsite. You'll also want to have Sucuri, S-U-C-U-R-I, and WordFence to provide firewall protection just to keep any possible hackers from coming in. I'm going to throw a fourth one in there. I like Yoast SEO, Y-O-A-S-T-S-E-O. That helps you keep your SEO organized from the very start because as you're starting to blog, If you set your keywords and your summaries up from the beginning, you don't have to go back after you've done 500 posts and uh, backfill that because that's no fun. Anyway, I hope this helps you get started. If you need any help at all with your website, reach out to me, Nicole, N-I-C-O-L-E, at livingfreeintennessee.com. And guys, Jack's Bourbon Cooled Bean is in. I shipped all of the pre-orders out last week. So if you have been wanting to try some Jack's Bourbon Cooled Sumatran, head over to hollerroast.com and order it while supplies last. I always sell out of this. So if you've wanted to try it, now's the time. Make it a great week. I'll just add in, my biggest concern for anybody that's doing a typical blog is the support you're going to get. If the company that you're working with, if something's wrong, they'll fix it. If you have a problem, they'll help you. I'm pretty good with it, and I'm I'm with Nicole sticking to WordPress for the blog platform itself. Uh, because anything you want to do, there's probably a plug-in that's either cheap or free that does that. Um, but I'm more concerned with the the provider themselves and their support than anything else. You know, and and specifically, I'm not that worried about is the hosting WordPress hosting because I honestly have an, a marketing issue with that because I think it's more marketing speak than anything else. Now, there are some companies and good ones, and Nicole mentioned some that kind of specialize in that, so maybe they're familiar with some of the issues and all, but a web server is a web server is a web server, and WordPress pretty much runs on just about any of them that you would ever get hosting on. And the average person running a business blog is not going to have the type of traffic nor resource requirements that are going to really be that big of a deal that almost any hosting provider, if they have good support and, 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 and good quality servers, it's going to work. So that's really more about who's going to look after you and take care of you if things go wrong. Sadly, um, HostGator no longer really fits that bill. I was a huge fan of them, recommended them for years, and uh, their, their service is not the problem. It's their support, and it used to be the best support. I've ever experienced from a web hosting company. And I don't know why it went downhill, but it did. Um, but, yeah, it's it's not something to get overly frustrated about. By the time you get to the point where you're really resource intensive, you're looking at kind of a dedicated server type situation anyway. And if you ever get into that need, email me, because that's something way more specific than I'm going to try to do 
uh, on the air with a general answer. Uh, next up, I've got a question for Doc Bones and dealing with a, a diagnosis that you really don't ever want to get, uh, multiple sclerosis. Doc, take it away. Hey, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, now in its third edition, our new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide, and designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert counsel is from Wes, who asks, What kind of medication should a person with multiple sclerosis or similar diseases store for emergencies? Are oral steroids a good idea to keep on hand? Wes, multiple sclerosis, or MS, is a complex illness where the protective covering of nerve cells, known as myelin sheaths, are damaged due to, well, still pretty unclear causes, although it's thought to be likely an immune response of the body against itself. We call those autoimmune disorders. Possibly, it has some genetic bearing. Lately, some are even wondering if a virus might trigger the disease. The disease usually begins between the ages of 20 and 50 and is twice as common in women as it is in men. The nerve damage is significant, causing a range of signs and symptoms depending on the location of the damaged nerve. This includes, well, a wide variety of just about everything, physical, mental, sometimes psychiatric problems. A sufferer might experience double vision, blindness in one eye, muscle weakness, coordination problems, trouble with sensation, feeling things, changes in sensations such as tingling, pins and needles, numbness, muscle weakness, blurred vision, pronounced reflexes, muscle spasms. Wow, just a lot of stuff. Difficulty in moving, difficulty with balance, problems with speech, swallowing. There are just so many things that can happen. These people constantly feel tired, may have chronic pain. They have bladder and bowel difficulties. It is truly a different disease than just about every person, and it is a debilitating disease. There are different kinds of MS. Some people get isolated attacks, which come and go, and they build over time to more severe effects. Some people have a more progressive disease. Everybody's a little bit different. Well, steroids are indeed one type of therapy which can improve the symptoms of MS. If you can stockpile them, well, I think you should. Although there are a dozen other medicines which may help, none is easy to obtain in any quantity, and only one is known to be effective in the advanced form of the illness. Treatment isn't even started in most cases until all other possible causes of the patient's symptoms are ruled out. That's called a diagnosis of exclusion. Over 50% of people with MS may use actual alternative medicine, complementary medicine, natural remedies to treat their issues. Unfortunately, the evidence for the effectiveness of such treatments is sort of limited. Options include probiotics. One of the unfortunate side effects of multiple sclerosis is poor nutrient intake. Probiotics are great. They're important beneficial bacteria that might have anti-inflammatory effects, might ease some of the effects of the illness. Selenium. Selenium is a rare and essential mineral in the human body that can help impact immune function, and metabolism. You'll find it in liver, fish, and nuts. Ginseng. Ginseng, well, it has both antioxidant and anti-inflammatory capabilities, and that might help relieve MS symptoms in some people. Also good for eliminating the fatigue that just seems to plague MS victims. 
marijuana. Marijuana, sure enough, some studies have shown that the sedative effects of marijuana may lessen the severity of a number of MS symptoms, both physical and psychological. Cranberry, the antioxidant compounds and general effects of cranberry often help improve bladder function, which is a common MS complaint and boost the quality of life for MS patients. Echinacea has been used. It's thought to promote the immune system in general, and that may lessen the damage that occurs with MS. Omega-3s and vitamin D, these promote a healthy immune system as well. They may have anti-inflammatory abilities. Massage, acupuncture, yoga, and other relaxation techniques are thought to help the MS patient alleviate anxiety and depression that's just so common among people that are suffering from this. It may not change the course of the illness, but you know what? It might improve the quality of life. This is Joe Alden, MD, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for watching. Hey, don't forget to check out Nurse Amy's entire line of medical kits and individual supplies, plus our latest book, Alden's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. And be sure to follow our YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy and subscribe to our website at doomandbloom.net for lots of informative videos. And remember, the Member Support Brigade gets a discount off anything in our store. Thanks again. Next up, we got uh, Derek Bon Pietro with a, of course, vehicle question because that's his world. But we got a guy looking to, uh, to get a truck, a used truck. Trying to decide between a diesel and gas, pretty much talked himself out of a diesel. I tend to agree with him. Derek does too, and you'll hear why. Big uh, work requirement for the truck is to plow snow out of a driveway, not a neighborhood, and uh, not a lot of other work for it. So with that in mind, Derek, what should we be looking for? Hey, TSP listeners, this is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com. I've got a question that started as a call-in and then a write-in, so let's get into it. Clinton writes in that he's looking for a truck to do some plowing of his driveway. He's got a 500-foot driveway, lives up in Michigan with about 95 inches of snow annually. That, in and of itself, you deserve an award for dealing with. Looking for advice. Additional info. I'm now looking at an F-250 gas with a V8. I hear that the 5.4 has issues with some spark plugs breakings or similar with an extended cab slash four-door. My budget is 13000 including the plane ticket to fly somewhere south or west where the trucks don't rust out as bad. In contrast to my call today, I no longer think that a diesel engine is a good fit. I will drive 13 miles to work or about 10,000 miles a year. I don't have anything to haul except some loads of manure for a farm and, or the garden and collecting leaves for the garden in the fall. And a bunch of kids when mom needs a break. Lastly, I've been avoiding trucks that already have a plow mount, for one, as I don't want a truck that's worn out already. Is this logical or doesn't matter? Well, Clint, I'm going to answer this question because I don't know what side of the fence you are as far as being able to have some repairs done by yourself or just solely relying on a mechanic because that's really going to dictate kind of the age of the vehicle. I would never recommend an older truck to somebody that doesn't feel comfortable turning a wrench or doing their own repairs because that can get pretty costly bringing it to somebody else. So I'm going to answer this both ways just to uh, cover all my bases here. Now as far as not needing a diesel engine, I would say if you're buying a newer truck with a newer electronic diesel and paying the premium for it, and I'm talking about 
uh, 2000s and, and, and later vintages where, you know, you're going to be talking fifteen twenty thousand $20,000 to get into a diesel truck. And those are a little bit more complex and pricier as far as maintenance goes because they are electronically injected. And sure, they get all kinds of fuel economy and power, but that comes out of premium and also putting premium fuel in it. I don't think you need a diesel. I think you'd be perfectly fine with the mileage. So don't feel like you have to get a diesel. I think a gas engine would serve its purpose just fine with what you're doing. Now, since you need to plow, this is really going to be one way or the other. Buying a truck that's already equipped with a plow, you're probably going to save some money on and that you don't have to outfit it yourself. But that is 100% contingent upon the person that had the truck and is selling it to you. So probably wouldn't buy it off of a lot that way. I'd want to do a person-to-person sale, and I'd want to know who was driving it. A little old man, garage-kept truck, doing his own driveway, not a problem whatsoever as long as everything looks good. Plow truck that possibly a business owned or had employees of a business driving, and when I mean driving, driving it like they stole it, ramming into stuff. I've seen people operate plows, and I just shake my head. General beating of a vehicle. I would steer clear of those 100%. And if that's the case, I would buy my truck without a plow and outfit it accordingly. Now, as far as the actual truck goes, I don't know if you're going to be hauling stuff in the bed or maybe just need some space. I don't think you're going to be shoveling manure into an SUV, but I think maybe a Suburban or a Ford Excursion would be a good uh, concept to look at, especially if you're going to be hauling people on occasion and you don't want to jam them into an extended cab. Uh, but then again, if you need a pickup bed to haul stuff, maybe a full crew or an extended cab is the better option. So you're going to have to make that call. But I think maybe one of those trucks would be a good thing to look at if you didn't have to need a bed for hauling stuff like manure. As far as the F-250 5.4 liter, it's probably an engine I would prefer to stay away from. I would opt for the 6.8 V10 just because it's probably going to get the same fuel economy from that overworked 5.4, and it's going to give you way more power on top of it. So it's going to be a happier life for you and the engine in a bigger truck. And I would certainly recommend probably a three-quarter or one ton for plowing. You can get away with a half ton, um, but it's going to eat up a lot of suspension and brake parts compared to a heavier-duty truck being used for plowing. I would absolutely avoid anything compact or midsize because when it comes to plowing snow or deep snow, you need mass. Physics cannot be cheated. And fiberglass plows and light-duty trucks that are that are physically light can't push snow as easily. And you can get away with it in a pinch with a small driveway, but I'm telling you, just from experience, you're going to be better off with something big. Now, solid axle front trucks, and this is going to eliminate pretty much any Chevy made after 91. They don't hold up as as well with the suspension parts, but also when you lift the plow blade, they typically sag down really bad compared to the solid axle rigs. Uh, the solid axle rigs being three-quarter and one-ton Dodge trucks or the Fords, unless you got the heavy-duty F-150, 250 with the seven lugs, avoid that model as well. But those solid axle rigs typically hold up well. So if you're looking for a newer truck, I hate to say it, you're pretty much limited to maybe a Dodge or a Ford. If you're looking older vintage, 90s and 80s, if you're if that's something that you can handle, that's going to be all of the trucks because they were all solid axles except for the F-150 and then the F-250 until 1997. So pay attention to that in the specs. I would prefer a solid front axle for any kind of heavy-duty truck. So I think... 80s and 90s vintage, I'd look at anything that's in good shape, rust-free, you feel comfortable with it, you like the body style, and it runs good. 
I'd say maybe go for something like that. If you were talking 2000s and later vintage, personally, I'd probably be looking at maybe a Super Duty or an Excursion, depending on what body style you want. Uh, you know, capacity and things like that, four-door, extended cab, you know, or go with the excursion. And I'd be looking at the V10. I think that's a good offering. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with the Dodge, but I tend to prefer the Ford just based on the power and the fact that it has front-locking hubs. But again, that's all personal preference for you. I think that the Ford probably has a little bit of an advantage on transmission strength. Dodge automatics are usually just in general garbage. But if I found one that was in good shape and the right price, you know, I'd probably take one and run it. So that's really going to be up to you. But I think those are kind of my recommendations. And don't sweat the spark plugs. I mean, the Triton engines, yeah, they have spark plug problems. And, you know, the exhaust manifolds are notorious for rotting off of them and the studs breaking. And and typically, ball joints and wheel bearings are very expensive on those. And yeah, if it's a work truck, it's going to eat up some of those. But you know something? If it's a good truck and it runs great and it serves the purpose, it's the cost of doing business. Well, Clint, I hope that answers your question or at least sends you in the right direction. Buying vehicles is never easy, and uh, good luck to you. At the AffordableDCGenerators.com page, I've got the write-up with all the parts for the power box build with all the links to the video. So if you hit that in the menu, you can find it. And if you subscribe to my newsletter, I always push out new information with new videos, new projects that are in the works. So put your email in there for a no-spam guarantee, just some good old fun with uh, power boxes and generators. I've got the backup inverter video in the works right now, and I've also got a small kit coming out that's going to be a few bucks, which will make my generator kit work with non-Honda engines. So for roughly $450 total assemble cost, you can get a non-Honda engine like Predator with an alternator and my kit, build your own power box. You've got great multiple uses and some backup power, and you don't have to run a generator all the time, making tons of noise, burning tons of fuel. So take a look at that. That's going to be coming out shortly. Take care, guys. All right, so next up, we've got Gary Collins with some ideas for healthy dishes for Thanksgiving. Gary, what do you say for Turkey Day? Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the SimpleLifeNow.com, where I discuss all things simple living, where all of my best-selling, the Simple Life book series, my off-grid book series are there, my supplement line, all the good stuff's there. Remember, your Better Life podcast is live. It's on iTunes. Go there, subscribe, and also leave reviews. Really appreciate that, guys. I know a lot of you have been asking me to do one for years. I finally have done it. Make sure to listen to it. And of course, give me feedback. Today, oh, Thanksgiving, my favorite day. I'm going to keep this very, very simple. Go figure. Guy who runs a company called The Simple Life. But when it comes to side dishes and Thanksgiving, and trying to stay within the anti-inflammatory diet, paleo primal. It can be a little tough. Thanksgiving's the one day out of the year where I just let her fly. That's my day of gluttony. I eat myself into a coma and I love it. It's my day. And after I do it, I don't feel so good and I don't want to do it for another year. But with that, my side dishes would be one of the easiest ones is cauliflower mashed potatoes. If you do it right, most people won't even really know the difference. You throw a little garlic salt in there, mash them up real good, boil them. They're, they're fantastic. The other one is just a simple salad, spinach salad. I know, super basic. Most people, you know, they may not like spinach, but they like it when it's in a salad. I don't know why. 
uh, easier to digest. I know most people think, oh, kale, Gary, you know, and uh, kale's tough to digest. And to be honest with you, most people don't like it. So, you know, make it a little easier on the rest of the guest. And my last one's going to surprise you. White rice. I know it's not paleo, it's not primal, and it's not low carb. The other two were, though. I have white rice. I, I spend Thanksgiving with my buddies. Uh, we've been doing this for them and their families for, gosh, 25 years, maybe more. How old am I? Yeah, it's more than that now I think about it. But simply, white rice, has, it, it's, it doesn't have the bran or germ. It's the endosperm, so it's just starchy carbohydrate, right? Having white rice every once in a while is not going to kill you. People who have a lot of food sensitivities, to include myself, white rice is an easy go-to for me, right? Uh, the Brandon germ contain the proteins that tend to cause people allergy issues, inflammation, so yeah, white rice, very, very simple to remove some of the starch. Just make sure you rinse it really well before you make it and before you steam it, it'll remove some of it. Not perfect, but those are my three go-tos. That's what I have as my side dishes every Thanksgiving mixed in with uh, some bad things, but I usually don't eat those. I hope that helps guys. Remember, I am an MSB company list. I'm on there. So you get 10% off your entire order uh, every time and free shipping. All right, guys. So go there again. Your Better Life Podcast live. Go check it out. I'm just going to say, if you try to pawn off a mashed cauliflower on me as a mashed potato, it might be something I'll even eat if it's flavored the right way, but no, I will know it is not a potato. I, I really wish there was a really great low-carb substitute for potato, and I've been known to use cauliflower myself. I'm working on, not really for Thanksgiving, but as a, a thing like, I said this in one of my keto videos on YouTube recently, I love Olive Garden's Supa Descana. I mean, I love it, and I can clone it. I actually don't even think I can clone it. I think I can make it better than they can. But the potatoes are where it all falls apart. And I got some ideas, but one is to use cauliflower, and I'm thinking the way to do that is to roast the cauliflower um, to it browns a little bit in the oven and keep it separate from the soup and then put it in the soup uh, only right at serving. I think that might actually work better than just throwing it in there as a potato substitute like some clones I've seen, some keto clones of that. Uh, but you can rest assured that Jack's uh, suggestions for at least a more keto-friendly, more low-carb-friendly uh, Thanksgiving sides will be coming. And I'm going to come at this from a different approach uh, than just replacing that which people expect. It's Thanksgiving. It's one day a year. You want to eat mashed potatoes, eat them. Uh, I'll eat probably a big tablespoon of mashed potatoes and a big tablespoon of stuffing on Thanksgiving. I'm just going to have some. I mean, that's that's one way. But I'm going to try to make some other things that go along with that that are more friendly toward low-carb world. And my biggest suggestion is for Thanksgiving, if you're trying to do low-carb, if you're going to like, I'm going to eat bread and I'm going to eat stuffing, and I, it's Thanksgiving, fine. Make small amounts of it. Make enough for everybody to have some. And if there is any leftovers, send it home with somebody else or get rid of it. 
the the big problem I've always had with screwing up my nutrition goals at Thanksgiving is the mass quantity of food that we make. And then it's around for like a week and a half, and you're eating it every day for a week and a half, and you just you're just trying to give yourself instant diabetes at that point. So bigger thing is just make less food and make more things and get rid of it as quickly as possible and go back to what you had planned. And don't be afraid to spoil yourself once in a while. It's okay. Just don't do it every day. And holidays are, you know, even though I call the whole thing a holiday season, Thanksgiving through Christmas and New Year's, you got Thanksgiving, you got Christmas, you can have you can have extravagance there and maybe one party in between, but you don't get to do that the whole time. That will just ruin everything that you're working on if you're trying to make your life more healthy and nutritious. All right. With that, let's uh, hear from Mike and Sue LaPreeze about parenting toddlers and resources to learn more about it. This is Michael and Sue LaPreeze with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you love to live for the expert counsel. Good morning, Jack. Good morning, TSP community. Today's question comes via voicemail. Can we recommend books or podcasts helping parents with toddlers or babies? So let me start by saying this. Feedback is a gift. So remember that as we're going through this, as we discuss this. Feedback is a gift. We've got going on 30 years of parenting, and so we were well into our parenting well before podcasting even was a thing. So quite frankly, we haven't looked for podcasts for raising toddlers or babies or children. Well, I did listen to a few because of this question, and you really have to listen to your own and find your own way. Yeah, so what the suggestion would be, just like you found TSP, pick one, start listening to them, and then try their recommendations or listen to what they say and see if it works for you. Give it a week. And if it doesn't work for you, find another. Move on. That's normally what I do with podcasts. I usually listen for at least a week. And when I'm trying a new podcast, something that I think will you know, give value to my life, I give them at least a week. And then if I see there's nothing that I can draw out of it that benefits me, then I move on. And for most people, the toddler stage is a very short period of their parenting. Ours has just happened to have been around 30 years. <laughs> yes, with three toddlers, still both a little older than the toddlers, but yeah. So. so the same thing with books or authors in general, when you're finding an author and you don't like them or they didn't say something that was important to you or helped you at all, then you move on. Still, my favorite parenting book of all time, it's not even a parenting book, it's an educator's book. It's called In Their Own Way by Thomas Armstrong. And I know I've mentioned it before, but it, this book really gave me the advice that my child was a unique individual that was entirely their own person, didn't belong to me, didn't belong to the state. They belong to themselves. And I've always loved knowing that right at the beginning with kid number one. So the key really is that your child is a unique individual. They're not your person. And their intelligence is going to look different than yours. It's going to be different than other people's. And as I was reading through these books early on, I kept coming across this guy, Howard Gardner, and I thought, well, I need to read his book. It's called The Theory of Multiple Intelligences, and you might need a dictionary to read this book. It's it's pretty complicated. But then I got really sucked into his books and read a whole bunch of his books. But the point of those books is 
your child is their self, their own self, unique and special. And that's a really key quality to know about your child. Yeah, and as Sue likes to say, raise your child or your children as though you wanted them. That's really important. So what's the best thing that you can do for your child? And the first thing I would say is you have to work on you, Yeah. improving yourself. Being a better person, thinking about your actions, the way you're talking, all those things, you have to fix that. Yeah, so when we talk about uh, that feedback is a gift, this is where it's going to start to come into play. So the other thing is you want to really um, help your children out, work on your relationship with your spouse. And that's hard because your spouse has to have the same desire to work out that relationship that you do to be better parents for your child. Yes. But if you're in one accord, then you have to work through those things. Yes. So a lot of it is based on your relationship with your spouse. And because parenting really grows out of those two things, right? Your your relationship with your spouse, working on yourself, and then your relationship with your children. Right. Because remember, your relationship with your spouse hopefully goes on after your children have gone. I don't know that we'll ever get to that point. But, <laughs> so um, your kids need your agreement as parents. They need you to be on the same side, on their side, but you have to be a team so that they can trust that what either of you says is what's going to happen. Yes, no triangulation. Yeah, and you don't have to agree on everything, but you have to agree on what your kid is doing and how they're doing it. It's just really important to make a happier home. Yes, and if you have just one child? Yeah, so peaceful parenting is a great... There's a bunch of people out there that podcast on peaceful parenting, and if you have one easy kid, it's a great way to learn how to talk to your child and encourage them and help them out. We like that a lot. And one of the things I would caution is beware of information overload. You can really get yourself in a position where all you're doing is trying to consume this information and it's too much information. So that's one of the nice things about podcasts. You can take them in sections. Today, I'm going to listen to this and how do I apply that to my parenting, my, my life? Yeah. So, and then make sure when you're listening to podcasts that you're listening based on what you currently need help with, because you only have so much time. And if you're just listening to podcasts on parenting and you're not addressing the actual problems that you have, then you're not going to be fixing the real problems that you have. Yes. So focus on the present problem, not just overall generic problems. So one of the things that Bill Mollison likes to say is solutions are embarrassingly simple. And in this case, that's really the truth. As you start working through these, a lot of times it might not be evident to you. You might not see it right up front, but generally the solutions are embarrassingly simple. Yeah. You want to be a better parent, be a better person. Yeah. And watch the people around you. And this is really key. If you want to change your parenting style and you need help with parenting, the people in your life are the best help you can get. Now, your parents might be really awesome or really horrible, but if they were good parents and you feel like either you or your spouse's parents can watch you and give you advice, and then you have to be humble enough to take that advice and or at least listen to that advice, and maybe you'll do it, maybe you won't, maybe it works for you, maybe it doesn't, but then you keep asking. Yes, and the people who are most interactive in your life are the people who can best answer a lot of these questions or at least give you advice they can observe how you're reacting uh the words that you're using uh, the tone of your voice yeah so like in dog training you say something really happy to a dog and the words can be horrible 
But if you use the right tone of voice, the dog's ears perk up and they're excited because they're listening to your tone and your children are the same. So, yeah, one of the things is like yelling at kids. Sometimes yeah, you don't so, even realize you're doing it, right? Yeah, and I I do yell at my kids. I think everybody does, if they'll be honest. But I had a conversation with some friends over lunch about yelling at the kids, and I thought, man, I really am doing a good job at that. And then the next day, of course, I yelled at my kids. Not their fault. I was frustrated. And I thought, okay, because I had that conversation, I recognized the yelling and could put a stop to it. And that's where friends come in. Yes. And so that's where you have to be honest with yourself. And so when your friends are giving you feedback, sometimes it's not very uh, comfortable. Sometimes yes. it can be a little embarrassing. Um, and, and sometimes it can hurt. Yeah. But that's where knowing that feedback is a gift is important. You have to be honest with yourself. You have to accept that feedback and, and look at those things that you need to change. So this has been Michael and Sue Laprise reminding you that when designing the life you'd love to live, feedback is a gift. Back to you, Jack. I guess my best advice for parenting toddlers is to treat them like what they are, which is small humans with a limited understanding of what you expect from them and what they're supposed to do and what is okay and what isn't okay. And just accept that sometimes things are not going to go your way. Um, and as they mature, you can begin to raise the standard. And that, that's kind of the, the, the reality. It's something you got to get through. But the good news is um, we got like 9 billion people on this planet. And we all went through that stage. And somehow the people raising us got through it. So it ain't as scared or ain't as hard to do as maybe people would think. Okay, so that brings me... Uh, to mine today, and I really don't like this subject. The guy that asked about it picked straight up on it when he said, uh, you don't talk about it. Yeah, I don't, for a reason. And, and the reason is I'm probably not going to change anybody's mind about this, and I'm definitely not going to change national policy on this, and it just pisses everybody off. But it's a fair question, and I get it enough that, you know, maybe once every seven years I'll talk about this and watch my, my subscriber numbers drop because, again, logic and reason pisses people off in emotional states. Um, this guy is Jamie, and he says, um, of course, Jamie could be a man or a woman, but so Jamie says, uh, can a person be pro-life and libertarian at the same time, and why are most libertarians pro-choice? I can actually answer that question before I go any deeper. The reason that you will find that most libertarians are pro-choice is they don't believe that they get to make their beliefs apply to others, beliefs apply to others, no matter what they are. They don't get to assign their beliefs to others through control mechanisms. So I think most libertarians believe that that's the only position that they can take. However, I don't think most libertarians are pro-life in the in the or pro-choice in the way that the word has come to be used today, which is any and everything that, that, that anybody can come up with calling abortion is okay. I don't believe that. I believe that most libertarians and most people lie somewhere in the middle, but when you try to go there, it pisses everybody off for some reason. Let me read the rest, and I'll give you my answer to this again, which is I think the only reasonable solution in a state, a society with a state in it, and and one that no one will like. <laughs> uh, I definitely tend toward libertarian beliefs. So one thing I absolutely cannot stand for is abortion. I've noticed a lot of libertarians are pro-choice, but to me, abortion is very obviously a violation of the NAP, like more than almost anything else, because I believe life begins at conception. I've noticed you don't talk about abortion on the show. In fact, in search of your site for the word abortion, return only one hit. 
I'm curious where you stand in regards to abortion. Maybe it's something you don't want to talk about on the air, as it tends to divide people. Of course, I've never known you to shy away from controversial topics. Anyway, just something I'm thinking about today. Keep up the great work. Been listening for 10-plus years, Jamie. Well, I don't mind controversial topics, and, and, and specifically, I don't mind controversial topics when I can say, I believe you're wrong, and this is why. This is not one of those. This is not one of those. And I also don't mind controversial topics when I believe that I can change people's minds. This is not one of those. I think if anything approaching changing your mind comes from this discussion, all you're going to find is you already thought this way, you just didn't think to articulate it this way. So Jamie believes that life begins at conception. I'm going to say something's going to be very hard for some of y'all to hear. That doesn't matter because it's what you believe. That's what you believe. And what you believe and what you can prove are different things. And if we're going to have a society that is based on a nation state, which is what we have, whether I like it or not, that's what we have, then you don't get to legislate based on what you believe. Very simple. On the other end of it, the people that believe that until the moment that a baby is either removed by a C-section or expelled from a birth canal that that is not a person, they also believe that. Because there is no scientific basis in that at all. You can't tell me a child 10 minutes from being born is not a human being. They have a brain, they can think, they can move, they can respond to pain, they are self-aware to some degree at least. And we know that in, in 15 minutes after that child is born, we, we all agree that that's a life, at least if we're not psychotic and sick in the head. We all agree that a baby that's five minutes old is a human. And there's almost no difference biologically between that being ten minutes before it comes out of the body of the female and five minutes after it got out. There's, there's literally none other than it's taken a, it started to breathe air directly. And I don't think that's the point at which we decide we have a human being. Because that would mean a human on a ventilator is no longer a human because they're being forced to breathe rather than breathing on their own. Right? They just, so to me, those two extremes don't, they don't work and they will never pass a scientific, biological litmus test for is this a human or is this not a human. Now, if you believe that the minute a sperm enters an egg cell, that at that second, that is a, a, a human being. Again, I don't think you have a scientific basis there either. You might have a religious basis. And I understand your religious basis. And one of the reasons I don't actually talk about this subject is I see no way that if you truly believe that in your heart of hearts, I can ever change your mind that any form of abortion is okay. I wouldn't expect you to change your mind. And if I believed at that point we had a human being... I would be on your side of the issue at that point and say we can't have an abortion even at that point. Now let's take it a little further though. There are people who believe, and they believe they have religious reasons to, they can prove it, that, a, that, that not only is abortion immoral, that contraception of certain types is wrong. The pill is wrong. Some people believe that a condom is wrong. So should we outlaw birth control? I think even most people that are 100,000 million percent anti-abortion don't think we should outlaw. There are actually some that do. So my question to you, if you are in the first group, you are 100%, there should be no abortion whatsoever, it should all be banned everywhere because it's a human being. 
How would you feel if the people that just took your position one degree further came out and said they wanted to pass a law that would throw you in prison for using birth control? Well, you'd say, whoa, 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 whoa. And then you would probably say, then you need to give me proof that we're protecting human life by doing this, rather than protecting, protecting potential human life. Guess what? All the people that are moderates on this issue have the same thing that they want to present to you. So if we're going to go into fantasy land, because what Jack says about this issue doesn't even matter. I'm not running for office. See, that's one of the things. The other things I think about this. This whole, where do you stand on abortion We have people that are running for county commissioner that are that are standing on it. Like you're not going to have any influence on this whatsoever. It's like some litmus test for people on one side or the other of the debate. Like you're immoral unless you're on my side, and I I hate issues like that. So and again, we're going into fantasy land here. So let's say there's a nation state called the United States of America. The Congress and the Supreme Court have been dissolved, and we now have a position known as. Supreme Emperor of the United States. What I speak is law, and once I've made that edict, it is done until I change it or the next Supreme Emperor change it. And this, in this fantasy world, somebody made me Supreme Emperor of the United States. And within this mythical world, about the only thing I can't do is dissolve the state. That there has to be a state and there has to be laws in reasonable situations where at least I look at it and go, yeah, we kind of need to know what the rules are for this. So even if I would prefer to not have government involved, I am compelled by this position that's been hoisted upon me against my will to issue edicts. That's how fantasy we are. And somebody said, Oh, sire, Spirico, this issue of abortion has troubled man too long. Will you please put an end to it and speak your edict? And I would say, I will speak my edict in six months. For six months, the law of the land will remain the law of the land. And I command thee now to convey for me a panel of 100 independent experts who are agnostic, and I want to stop being my, uh, my supreme overlord for a minute and explain what agnostic means, because many of you do not know what agnostic means. Agnostic has nothing to do with what you believe. It has to do with what you know. An agnostic, if they're using it in religious context, an agnostic is not an atheist light. An agnostic is the only sane position that anybody can have about the question of God. Because the agnostic position of God is, I don't believe in God, but if you can prove to me, you know, I'm open to the idea. That's not what agnostic means. Agnostic means I do not know if God exists or not. And I think for, from atheist to died-in-the-wool Christian and everything in between, that is, the only sane, that is the only sane statement there is. I do not know. I believe or I don't believe. That's atheist versus theist, okay? So when I'm using the word agnostic here, I'm not even talking about God, but I'm using it in the context of do you think you know? Do you believe that you know? So they are agnostic to the question of when does a developing embryo become something that we should look at as a human life. I want doctors. I want biologists. I want chemists. I want the people at the top of their field that are currently absent the bias of opinion on this question, I want this panel convened for six months, and I want them to come to a group consensus once everybody has gathered and presented their information, and they all vote, and we can get, what do we say? Where at least 75% of this group of people agree that at this point we have a human life. 
And I'm going to tell you what it, what it's not going to be. It's not going to be two weeks after conception. It, I'm, I'm telling you, it's not going to come out that way. And it's not going to be two weeks before the child is born. It's not going to be either one of those. It could be eight weeks. It could be 12 weeks. It could be 14 weeks. It could be seven weeks. I don't know. See, I w if I actually had the expertise as the scientist, I would be perfect for this because I'm one of the people that can actually admit that I don't know when that number is. Now I'm going to say the next part. No matter what that number is, there will be people that say it's too early or it's too late. And I can't please them. I can't please them. And you have to look at this the way we look at something like <clears throat> an IQ. A person that's under, I think, 75 IQ, if they commit a crime, they are handled differently by courts because they're not considered intellectually capable of understanding. And if they have a 76, they go to court just like a person with my IQ or your IQ. But if they have a 74... <clears throat> They're handled as being basically mentally retarded, and they're held to a different standard because they're not considered intellectually capable. Now, I'm, I'm going to bet that if you talk to a person with a 76 IQ next to a person with a 74 IQ, there's not a lot of difference. But because we needed to acknowledge the fact that there are people, people that are intellectually incapable of understanding what they've been accused of, and there are people that are intellectually capable we made a best guess at a number, and we assigned that number, and then at least everybody knows where we are and what the rules are. And we play by that set of rules, right? So if this number turned out to be, and see, I hate to put a number on it because I'm going to have somebody explain to me why I'm wrong. If you explain to me why I'm wrong about the number I'm about to use, you didn't understand a single freaking word I've said up till now because I don't know. I'm pulling an arbitrary number out of my ass. If that number were, for instance, nine weeks, right? If it was nine weeks, then we could make a case that maybe it should be a little less or maybe it should be a little bit more. But this is what we would know. We would not have children in the third trimester being ripped out of the bodies of their mothers and killed, even though it's a small fraction of, of, of abortions. Most abortions take place under 12 weeks. Most of them do. Most take place under eight weeks. Okay? But whatever the number was, we would know. And it would do a couple things. Number one, it would end this argument that is based on a philosophical twisted belief and a religious conviction. The philosophical belief, and this what happened is the right wing came out and put laws up against abortion, and they took religious belief versus scientific proof, and they use the state to enforce a religious belief, which isn't, whether you agree with it or not, it's an extreme position. Now, what do I always say about extremes? Extremes create extremes. The left, of course, found that to be reprehensible and said you're interfering with women's rights. We ended up with the Roe v. Wade decision, and it became the point that we could not flat out outright ban abortions. But Roe v. Wade does not prevent putting certain restrictions on abortion. It doesn't. It never did. It never has, and it never will. You would need a new decision to have the, the case made that there can be no restrictions whatsoever on abortion. Right? That never existed. It's a fantasy. But the right seems to feel, if we can just overturn it, we can outlaw it across the board. And the left seems to feel, if we protect it, we can have abortions up to one second before birth. Two extreme positions. And what happens when you have two extreme positions fighting? They polarize further into their extremes. 
To the point where there's many on the right that if they were offered a deal, hey, look, we'll outlaw abortion after nine weeks. They would fight that instead of going, hey, that's, that's a win. That's one place the right falls on its face. The left is very good at incremental wins. I'm not saying there's no people on the right fighting to limit late-term abortion, etc. But my solution would be that we find this place where we can look at the developmental state. And here's what I would say about that. If that group that I put together, agnostic scientists, who are simply asking the question and have to make a, a biological case for this is a human being, if they came back and said that number is three weeks, so let it be written, so let it be done, we are done. I don't think that's the number, but if that's the number I got, well now, if, as long as it makes sense how it was done... You present the methodology to me, you present your case, and as supreme overlord of Fantasyland United States, this is the best you can do, a hundred of the brightest minds in the world, so let it be written, so let it be done. And if that number is greater than a number I think it should be, so let it be written, so let it be done. And then, this goes back to the place that it belongs, the concept of the war of ideas. If you want to convince someone that they should not have an abortion then you need to give them a compelling reason. And let me speak to those of you on the right who are well-meaning about the dumbest words that come out of your mouth. Those words that would convince somebody to listen to you are not, you're murdering your baby. That is the dumbest words. I don't care if you believe it. I don't care if you think it's true. It, it, there is a concept in debate, do you want to win or do you want to be right? And if your goal is to create less abortions, going around and screaming that women that choose to terminate a pregnancy are murderers without knowing anything about them or anything about their lives is the dumbest, I will repeat the dumbest, and I will even use a word that got used in yesterday's show one time so that you clearly understand me. This will be the F word. If you don't want to hear it, I would skip ahead 30 seconds right now. It is the stupidest fucking words that can come out of your mouth. It literally alienates everybody who might have listened to you up till now because you sound like a freaking idiot to them, whether you are or you aren't. And there's a whole bunch of women out there who already made this choice, who already made this decision in their life, and telling them they're murderers is not going to win them over to your side. Talking about the pain that women go through. See, up to this point, you don't even got... Here's the thing, y'all are all mad at me. You don't even know what my position is. You don't even know what I... And I'm not going to tell you. Because I'm not talking about my opinion here. I'm talking about how you run a society. Those are very different positions. Okay? But there are women that, that have deep, lasting, emotional scars. And you're giving them a choice of turning toward people who call them murderers with no understanding of what they were under when they made that decision. At all. And people that say they're heroes, where do you think they're going to go? Who do you think they're going to choose? But if you're talking about with compassion the pain that women go through, that think about this in their later years and the mistakes that they made and wondering what that child would have become, then they might listen to you. Then they might come out and tell their story. Then they might compel others to think more clearly about this. And then the final piece of this, I find it, absolutely reprehensible and, a, and an indictment on the intellectual capacity of the people of this country that we even have to have this discussion in 2019. Preventing the, 
preventing unwanting pregnancy is not complicated. And I'm going to hear from some hateful person, I use birth control. Okay, yeah, I understand. There are failures of birth control. But I bet you that more than 90% of unwanted pregnancies were absent birth control. You want to bet? I bet you the number's higher than that. I bet you the official number's lower because people lie. People lie. Oh, how'd you, well, we were using birth control. Yeah, what? You were thinking about not getting pregnant when you were having sex? I'm sorry. Like, this isn't that hard. And if you're like, well, if you don't want to have, if you don't have, have kids, then just don't have sex. You know what? That, that works for you. That's fine. Abstinence is not a solution. And if you have young children and you are not making sure that they, and you know, when I say young children, you like young adult children, like in their teens that are getting into that point. You better make sure they have access to birth control or you might have to deal with this situation in a way that you don't want to. Because abstinence is not, not going to work for 90% of the people. But you know what prevents babies? Condoms prevent babies. The pill prevents babies. To a lesser extent, but added to either one, spermicide prevents babies. So if you don't want to have a child, then take appropriate action so that you do not get pregnant. Be responsible. If you're responsible enough to have sex, you're responsible enough to use birth control if you're not ready to be a parent. And you can say whatever you want, about both sides being responsible, and I'll agree with you. But I'll also tell you this, only one side has to. Only one of the two has to make the decision that there's going to be some form of birth control here. And let me tell you something else, men, young men especially, do not think for a minute that there are not women who will lie to you about being on the pill. Do not believe that for a second. Because I know for a fact, from personal connections, that it does happen and continues to happen. There are women who actually want to get pregnant, even by some guy they just met. They're on a quest for it. If you don't know, and you got to really know if you know, if you, if you are agnostic to the question, assume the answer is negative and take your own responsibility here. And I think that's the overall position for a libertarian is that this is a thing that human beings are aware of. This is not a problem that can't be solved. And the true answer in this is education and personal responsibility. And then, while we might have a few instances of this that we still have to deal with what should be done, the number would be so much lower. And in, in my opinion, this is a third rail, of, third rail of politics, because even though everything I just said is based on logic, reason, science, and fact, and legal precedent and common law, it's probably not something that anybody's happy with. And that's why it's not really worthy of me taking time to do this except about once every seven years. So there you go. Hopefully you won't tune out now. Anyway, with that, if I haven't totally angered you and uh, you still want to support this show in spite of the fact that I have a, I dare to have a position that is a, a middle-of-the-road position on something that's completely controversial and I didn't polarize to one side versus the other, you can help support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Um, this week, we I've not talked about it. We're going to talk about backup power on uh, Monday some. But, you know, we've had these rolling blackouts, these planned blackouts in California, like 80% of the state at some point being without power due to wildfires. And um, so I've been subconsciously, I guess, bringing uh, backup power options to you this week. I brought you the uh, deal of the day on the uh, backup power for your uh, cell phones the other day. Uh, I also brought you earlier this week 
uh, the Cobra CPI 890 compact power inverter and some other things for your backup power, uh, including I even brought you something that's not really think of as a backup power thing this week as an item of the day, but it really does work in a power outage. The insulated French press mug by Securia for making your coffee. So even though the power is out, as long as you can boil water, you can still have coffee. You don't have to rely on your drip maker or your Keurig. Um, today, what I'm bringing you is what I think is still the best value in backup lighting that there is. The E-Tech City 4-pack of LED lanterns. They have the older model and the newer model. They're within a couple bucks of each other. Uh, these things, depending on what you buy, are between like 7 and $8 a piece. And uh, they are an LED lantern. Uh, they work by simply opening them up. And they come on, you close them, they shut off. Uh, as inexpensive as they are, you know, you can put one in every room during a blackout. You can put a little hook up in your ceiling that you don't even see when you're not using it. Reach up and hang that sucker on there, pull it, it'll light a whole room. They burn for hours and hours and hours on three AAA batteries, right? Or, I'm sorry, three AA batteries, which you should have rechargeable versions thereof and be able to keep yourself running infinitely on these things. They're not the best lantern. If you wanted a really heavy-duty lantern, I even link in the article to the one called the Siege Lantern, um, which is just the best la best battery-powered lantern in the world, as far as I'm concerned. The cheapest version of it's like $25. You can get four of these for that. These are low-cost. Use them at home. Use them for the kids camping in the backyard. Use them for sitting on the side of the lake fishing type. You, know, you don't worry about one if it gets left behind or run over by a car lanterns. Now, the thing about them is... Um, E-Tech City has sold, sold literally like hundreds of thousands of these things. And they are a lower-end electronic product. So at some point, you're going to have some arrive DOA. It's going to happen. You're going to get, you know, if, 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 if 1% have a problem and 90%, 99% are good, that's great in low-tech electronics. But when you sell, you know, 100,000 of them in a year, that adds up like 10,000 broken ones. So I wrote E-Tech City, and basically they said, you know what? If somebody gets one of these things and they have a bad one, they write us, we just send them another one. We don't ask them to send it back. We don't ask them to do a return. We just send them another one. We just send them an extra. We just consider it part of doing business. I don't know what else you can ask for from a company, especially a company based in China selling low-end electronics. E-Tech City does that with all their stuff. That's why I always recommend them. Check them out. And guys, it's getting close to Christmas at you know a four-pack for... 32 bucks for the newer model, they're a hell of a gift. And if somebody's not worth all four, you could buy a $32 package of them and give two to one group and two to another, or even though maybe they only get one. Uh, these would be good for your $10 white elephant gifts. I mean, I know it's October, but Christmas is going to be here. Check them out. And remember, you can always support the Survival Podcast, as long as you're not too pissed off at me now over my stance on an issue that I'm not going to affect in any way in the world. Um, you can always do that by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. The other thing you can do is become a member of the MSB by going to survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. Time for our song of the day. I wanted a happy song today, and we got one. Uh, this is a Kid Rock song. I love some of Kid Rock songs, and I don't like others, but I love this one. This is all summer long. And this is like a coming-of-age song. This is like a song, you know, teenagers turning into adult song. This is like, you know, first year, first first summer in your first year of college or maybe the summer after your last year of high school, like somewhere in that range, uh, hanging out at a lake, you know, and just being a kid that's kind of really a young adult 
And kind of in league with what we were talking about, if that's you, don't go making babies during this time, even if you're doing baby-making activities. Take appropriate you know, courses of action. Uh, but I love this song because I think all of us have some point in our life like this. For some of us, it is, like for me, it was my, my summer before I left for the Army um, after high school. When I was done and I knew I was done with school, which I really hated a lot of things about school. I liked some classes, but overall I hate it. I knew I was done and I knew I was going off the Army and I knew like I had a part-time job, but I didn't really need to worry about it because, well, I was going to go in the Army and that, that was a full-time job and that was only a few months away. And man, let's just blow some steam off and hanging out in the, the, the coal country and the mountains and going swimming and stripping holes and uh, chasing girls and, and having a really great girlfriend for a while uh, during that period. I mean, it was all just fun. And some people, maybe it's a little later. For me, it also is kind of, my time in the military was more like this in some ways than my time at home. You know, once I got to my permanent duty station and I was off every weekend and we were, you know, hanging out in the mountains of Panama up in Cerro Azul or taking trips up into Costa Rica and all. And I mean, it was just fun. And it was before you got real serious about life. And I think, though, I don't want to go back to that. I don't want to not take care of myself, you know, physically. I don't want to be reckless. I don't want to ever be stuck. I'll tell you, I was one time, it was some friends of mine and I, we climbed in the back of this guy named Lee's pickup truck. We were going home from the bar. Fortunately, Lee didn't drink. That's why he was always a designated driver. This is like a little Ford Ranger, but like a souped-up sporty model one from the, the, the early 90s, those ones. And he was doing about 120 miles an hour in this little truck. And the truck is like full of people. There's like elbows and arms hanging out of the truck. And me and this guy, Sean, and my best friend, Brad, are standing in the back of the truck. He had a roll bar. We're holding on to the roll bar. And we had a bottle of Jack Daniels. I mean like a fifth. Black label Jack. And we were chugging it and passing it back and forth, holding on with one hand and screaming like we were riding bulls in a rodeo. That's the kind of crazy shit this song's about. But it's also about being older and wiser and knowing that was stupid and looking back onto it and saying, kid, you're lucky you made it to where you are now. But I do want to reach back in time every once in a while and grab a little bit of that optimism and that craziness you had and keep it in my life. With that, hope you enjoy this weekend. It's been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Somewhere between a boy and man She was 17 and she was far from in between It was summertime in northern Michigan